Morning. Perhaps saw you guys for uh, making the extra effort to get dug out of the storm. It's great to see everybody here and to see some new faces too. Very, very cool. Uh, so as Tracy said, we are actually now in our third week in our Messages in the Miracles series where we're looking at Jesus' miracles in the book of John. And uh, last week we looked at Jesus' first sign which was the miracle at the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. Uh, This week, we're looking at a miracle that happens not long after that miracle. It actually happens in the same location as the first miracle, in Cana. And it's known as the healing of the official's son. Now, you might remember that last week, I started off by saying that Jesus' first miraculous sign It defies expectations, or it upsets expectations. If I asked you, what do you think that when the Son of God came to earth, what do you think his first miracle would be, his inaugural miracle? I don't think you would ever guess, oh, he's going to turn water into wine. But I suggested that one of the things that you might guess is, well, he's going to heal somebody. That would make sense for an inaugural miracle, right? Well, uh, this miracle is that kind of miracle. This is the healing of, of somebody who's sick. And yet... Jesus still manages to upset expectations with this miracle. He really seems to have a thing about upsetting everybody's expectations. So in a moment, you'll find out uh, why that is. If you have a Bible, open up to John uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 46. John 4, starting in verse 46. Let me uh, say a quick prayer for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the snow. Uh, We thank you uh, for being able to be together here in fellowship. And uh, Lord, we just invite you uh, into our our minds, into our hearts right now. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be open to receive whatever it is that you want to say to us this morning. And uh, God, I, I just, I pray for that receptiveness and I just pray for that desire uh, to know you more. And, uh, and to grow and be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John four forty six. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, He went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. All right, so let's go back to the top. Of the story. You may have noticed that there's some details here about places, right? Cana, Galilee, Capernaum, Judea. Now, if you're anything like me, when you're reading a story and there's all place names and that sort of thing, you tune out a little bit, 
you kind of feel like, well, I, I don't know why I need to know, know these things. They don't really move the narrative forward. Uh, but these details are actually super valuable okay, for two reasons. The first reason is that they remind us that this is supposed to be a historical story. Okay? These are real places. These are not places like Mount Olympus or Mordor or Narnia. These are real world locations. Uh, so this is, <laughs> this is not meant to be allegory. Okay? This is not a fable. This is meant to be uh, a historical story. But the second reason that these details are valuable is because they help us to realize just how far the father has traveled to get help for his son. Uh, the, the distance between Cana and Capernaum, you can see them at, at the top of this map, is about 18 miles. Now, of course, that depends on where you are in Cana and where you are in Capernaum, but it's going to be somewhere between 15 and 20 miles. Uh, and it's not a flat 15 to 20 miles. It's actually quite hilly. Now, of course, if today you said, oh, I have to go somewhere 15 to 20 miles from here, that's not a big deal because you can just get in a car and go. But walking 15 to 20 miles, that's a really big commitment. Uh, if you were to walk from here to Willimantic, that would be 12 miles. So you would still be at least three miles short of this trip, maybe as much as seven miles short of this trip. If you were to walk from here to Manchester by way of 44 and 384, uh, that would be 17 miles. So that's within the range of the distance from Capernaum to, to Cana. Now, if I said right now, oh, we're all going to take a walk to Manchester, you'd be like, well, I better make sure I have my good walking shoes on. And you know, I don't know if I want to go today because it's cold. Like, that's, that's a significant commitment. That's, a, that's not an easy trip, especially in the days before nice shoes and socks. Uh, and I feel like I have a newfound appreciation for this because back in the fall, I went on a three-day backpacking trip, first backpacking trip I've ever been on, uh, with some guys from church. I went because I wanted some sermon illustrations, and so thankfully that's starting to be <laughs> fulfilled. And we actually did, we did 11 miles in the first day, and I was beat after that. I was totally spent. I was much more spent than anybody else in the group, which is embarrassing to admit, but um, I, was, I was really spent. I set up my tent, which I could barely do, and I lay inside, and the guys don't know this, but I was like praying that the next morning I would still be able to move, because <laughs> it's like I still have two more days of this. Now, granted, I had 35 pounds on my back, which is probably more than I should have had. Um, and I don't know how much this guy was carrying, this guy going from uh, Capernaum to Cana. I doubt it was 35 pounds. Um, but whatever the case, 20 miles is a lot of ground to cover in one day, because I did just a little bit more than half of that, and that was enough. I didn't want to do any more. I remember the first night of that trip, we stayed at a shelter, and there was a guy there who was trying to through-hike the entire Appalachian Trail, which you know, that's thousands of miles. That's, that's a huge trip. Um, and I asked him how far he travels in a day. And he said, well, it depends on what time I get started, but it's probably about 20 miles. And I remember feeling jealous and even a little annoyed that he was so nonchalant about that. He said, oh, about 20 miles in a day. <laughs> um, and I guess I shouldn't be too hard 
on myself because it was my first time. But you know, even this guy, a guy who is in peak physical shape, who basically, this is what he does, he walks right every day. Um, even he caps out at around 20 miles a day, the distance between Capernaum and Cana. Um, so for someone who's in great shape, 20 miles might be doable, barely. Um, but for most of us, a 20-mile journey is probably going to be the kind of trip where we're going to want to stop somewhere overnight and do at least half the trip the next day. <clears throat> so when this royal official comes to Jesus and begs for him to heal his child, we need to see a very desperate man. Uh, and we also need to see a man who does have some faith in Jesus because you don't travel that far in that day and age uh, unless you really think that this miracle worker might be able to do something for your child. You know, I, I know I, if I was weighing whether to leave or stay, I'd be like, well, if my child's going to die, I want to be with him, you know, when he dies. But I guess the other option is to risk it and go 20 miles to try and find somebody to help him. I mean, unless I thought there was a good chance that Jesus could actually do something, I, I, don't, I think I'd stay with my kid. So he's a desperate man, and he does have some faith in Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus and, and, and says, heal my child, Jesus' response is actually kind of cold, right? It reminds me of Jesus' response to his mom in the miracle that we looked at last week, right? When, when Mary comes and says, they have no more wine, Jesus doesn't go, oh, let me get to it. He says, oh, why do you, why do you trouble me, woman? And once again, Jesus uh, seems, seems cold here. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, one of the things that's tricky about, about Scripture is it's hard to know. In fact, it's impossible to really know what Jesus' tone of voice was when he said those words. You know, could have been an exasperated tone, like, oh, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Or it could have been a more matter-of-fact statement, like, well, Unless you people see signs of wonders, you'll never believe. So I guess I better do something. You know, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, we don't know and we can't know. But whatever Jesus' tone of voice was, I think we can be pretty confident that Jesus wishes signs and wonders weren't necessary. That's the vibe I get. He, he wishes that people would believe without the signs and wonders. Now, and it is true that later in, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, blessed are those who, who believe even though they have not seen. You know, Thomas wants to put his, his fingers into um, Jesus' uh, hands where the nails were. And, and Jesus allows him to do that, and, and, but he says, you know, blessed are those who don't have the opportunity to do this and yet still believe. Um, <clears throat> so now why would that be? Why, why would Jesus want people to believe without seeing the signs and wonders? Why would that be? Well, I can think of two reasons. And this was an important question for me to ask because I know that if I had the capability to do signs and wonders, I would feel like showing off, to be honest. I've always had this secret desire. Not Now it's not going to be so secret. I've always had this secret desire to be a, a magician. Like, I would love to be somebody who could do these really cool card tricks, those card tricks where people are just like, I can't believe you did that. It's like you have superpowers, you know? And that's just wanting to be an illusionist. How much better would it be if I could just, like, boom, boom, do supernatural stuff? I'd feel like if I had that ability, I would want to show off. But Jesus seems reluctant. He seemed 
reluctant last week, and he seems reluctant now. So what's the deal? Well, I, I can think of two reasons why he has this reluctance. Now, the first reason is one that I talked about last week, which is the more Jesus does signs and wonders, the more he knows that he's going to cause a stir. People are going to start following him. People are going to be uh, enamored with him. And the more that that happens, the more the religious leaders are going to get jealous. And the more that the religious leaders get jealous, the more likely uh, we're going to speed up the chain of events that's going to lead to his, his crucifixion and his suffering and his death. And Jesus, although he knows that's part of his mission, a huge part of his mission, he's not eager to experience that suffering and to go through that pain. And uh, so Jesus is a little hesitant on the signs and wonders, I think, for that reason. But the second reason is a, is a bit deeper. Uh, the second reason I think Jesus is not particularly excited about signs and wonders is because he doesn't want people to follow him just because of what he can do for them. He wants people to follow him because of who he is. You see that distinction? He doesn't just want to be a vending machine. He wants people to follow him because of who he is. Jesus wants genuine, authentic relationships with people, not just what you might call consumer relationships. Uh, people who have a lot of wealth or power have a hard time having genuine, authentic relationships. I've heard that celebrities often have a really hard time knowing who their friends are. Um, because when you're famous, everybody wants to be your friend, right? Um, now, a lot of the time, most of the times, they, they don't really love you, they don't really even like you because they don't even know you. But they still want to be your friend. And they might not realize why this is, but the reason is because in being your friend, they boost their own social status. They feel more important. They feel more significant. I am actually guilty of this a bit myself. I was, I was thinking about this. And I remember I had a friend who went to Brown University at the same time that the actress Emma Watson was there. And sometimes she would text me and say, oh, I just saw Emma on campus. I just saw Emma walking from one place to another or whatever. Now, I can't say that I was ever a, a big Emma Watson fan or anything, but I used to secretly hope that my friend would become friends with Emma Watson, because then that might mean that I might become friends with Emma Watson. Now, why would I want to be friends with Emma Watson? I don't know Emma Watson. She might not be fun to hang around with at all, right? I don't know that. But the reason was because I just thought it would be super cool to be able to say, I know Emma Watson. Why? Because it makes me feel more significant. It makes me feel more valuable. It makes me feel more important. Which, when I say it out loud, it sounds incredibly stupid, right? <laughs> but that's true. That's, <laughs> that's why when you see somebody famous, you're like, oh, I want to get a picture with them. And then I want to put it on social media. Because somehow, it's like their social currency is getting passed on to you. And you're feeling more important and special. So it's really hard for people like Emma Watson uh, to find authentic relationships because whenever they meet someone, they can't really be sure if that person is interested in authentic relationship with them or whether they're just talking to them because there's something that they can get from them, some sort of boost in social status. So that's a common and especially difficult experience 
for celebrities, I would imagine, but how much more so would this be true for somebody with supernatural power? Right? Somebody who can make food appear out of nowhere, someone who can walk on water, someone who has the ability to affect the weather, and somebody who can heal people. How hard would it be to ever have a real, authentic, genuine relationship with somebody if you had those abilities and people knew about that? I think it would be super hard. And Jesus, he does want to serve us. Okay? He says he came to serve. But he also wants authentic relationship with us, which means he doesn't want us to treat him like a vending machine. And, you know, he doesn't just want that for selfish reasons. He actually wants that for our sake, too. Because he wants us to realize that the best thing that he has to offer is himself. That's better than food. That's better than water that's been turned into wine. Uh, it's, it's better even than physical health. Fellowship and friendship with the creator of the universe. That is the best thing that Jesus has to offer. That cannot be beat. And that's actually the thing that we truly long for. That's the desire that undergirds every other desire that we have. That is the yearning of our souls. And if we only come to Jesus for him to fill our stomachs or for him to heal our sickness, we can miss out on the best thing that he has to give us. You know, Jesus is never just supposed to be a means to an end. He's supposed to be the end in himself. He's not supposed to be a vending machine. But even though Jesus has these concerns about signs and wonders, even though he has this little bit of reluctance, he also still has a lot of compassion. And he also knows that signs and wonders are supposed to be part of his whole program of ministry. He knows that they do have value. And so, in this case, he does a miracle. And he heals this man's son. But, remember I said he does it in an unexpected way. Here's what happens. Uh, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, come to my house, Jesus. Come to Capernaum. Get your comfortable shoes on and make the 20-mile journey over to my house. But Jesus just says, go. Your son will live. And he heals him from a distance. Now, yeah, I said this upset expectations. Well, well this is why. Because in those days, people expected that if you were a miracle worker and you had any powers to, to heal people, you needed to be in the presence of whoever you were healing in order to, to heal them. So for Jesus to just say from 20 miles away, a whole day's journey, oh, he's healed, that was a demonstration of power and authority that was beyond what every, anyone would have expected. That was remarkable. That was incredible. But that's what Jesus does. Now imagine being that desperate father in this moment. You know, if I were him, I think I would say, Okay, that's great, Jesus, but couldn't you just come with me anyway? You know, just in case? Couldn't you come and lay hands on my child? Because that's the way these things usually work. I mean, what if you're wrong, Jesus? You can't see my son right now. Maybe you healed the wrong kid. <laughs> you know, this, this healing at a distance thing, I don't know. That's not how it's done. It seems risky. You know, why don't you, why don't you come with me? But as far as we know, the father didn't say anything like that. 
We're just told the man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man took Jesus at his word. That couldn't have been easy for him. Couldn't have been easy to do. And then he started that long journey back home. And I want us to try and imagine right now, this is actually, I believe, a picture of that road. Maybe not exactly what it looked like then, but today. I want us to imagine what that long, home, that long walk home was like for that father. Uh, we're told that later, uh, we're told later when, that when Jesus gave the word, it was one in the afternoon. One in the afternoon. Uh, which would mean that when Jesus said that, it was too late in the day to make the whole journey home before sunset. So I imagine what probably happened is that the guy started on his journey home, and he spent the night somewhere, and then he was continuing his journey the next day, and somewhere along, along the way, his, he, he saw his servants running to him to tell him that his boy had been healed. Um, <clears throat> but I have to imagine that all that time he was traveling before his servant showed up, he must have been nervous. You know, he must have been wondering, did it really work? He must have been thinking, ah, maybe I should have pressured him a little bit more to come with me. And I have to imagine that he was envisioning uh, both best case and worst case scenarios. So he probably was imagining, oh, maybe I'll come to the house and I'll walk through the threshold there and, and I'll, I'll, my, my child will just run towards me. And he'll jump into my arms and I'll hug him and I'll be able to feel that the fever is gone. He's nice and cool to the touch and, and he's happy and he's safe. But then I'm sure he was also envisioning the possibility of the worst case scenario, that he walks towards the house and before he even gets through the door, he can hear the cries of his servants and of the family because they're surrounded, they've surrounded his, his son's lifeless body in their mourning. And I'm sure his imagination was playing out both of those scenarios and then that, on that long walk home. And he was probably alternating back and forth between faith and doubt. Faith and doubt. And then I started to, to think about this more. And it occurred to me that there's something about that man's experience, that man's long journey home, that is true of every Christian's experience. And uh, this might seem like a stretch at first, but I'm really convinced of this, okay? Because we all, in a sense, are on a long journey. We're on a long journey home. Life is a long journey. And if we have put our faith in Jesus, Jesus has given us words of assurance. Just like he gave this man words of assurance. You know, your son is going to be healed. And the essence of Jesus' words of assurance to us is the same in both cases. It's essentially, in the end, things are going to be okay. That's essentially it. In the end, things are going to be okay. He says, yes, in this world you have, will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. You're going to have trouble, but in the end, things are going to be okay. And we're supposed to be confident of that because Jesus has said things like, Whoever believes in me will never perish, but will have eternal life. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I've gone to prepare a place for you. If that weren't true, I would have told you. He said, 
To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of life. He said, whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. And he said, I am making all things new. And as we're on our long journey home, this journey of life, at times we may find ourselves feeling assured by Jesus' words. We may find ourselves feeling confident and secure in those promises. But there may be other times where we find ourselves wondering, is it really true? And we may find ourselves envisioning worst-case scenarios, you know, in doubting whether in the end those promises are going to be fulfilled or whether those promises even apply to us. But what I want us to see this morning is that this story, this miracle, should be an encouragement for every one of us on that journey because it reminds us that Jesus' word is trustworthy. Right? Because before the man even gets home, the servants run to him, and they say, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And not, not only has he been healed, but it happened at the exact time that Jesus pronounced that he was going to be healed. You know, I really, I really love that detail in the story. And I love it for two reasons. Uh, one is because if that detail wasn't there, it would be easy for skeptical people, either then or now, to say that there was no cause and effect relationship between what Jesus said and what happened. You know, it would be easier to just say, well, you know, it's just a coincidence. His body fought off the fever, and that was that. But it's harder to deny the connection when it happened at the same time. You know, and I love that, that Jesus does that for us. You know, for any of us who are maybe are a bit more skeptical, he gives us a little something more in order to, to trust that this was, actually, this was actually the work of God. But the second reason I appreciate this detail is because it reminds me of stories that I've heard today about the way that God tends to work. Um, I've heard stories over the years about times when people will suddenly experience a profound sense of peace or relief from pain, and then later, they'll, they'll find out that someone was praying for them in that exact moment. And I've also heard stories about uh, people suddenly feeling a burden to pray. I think I've had this experience myself. Uh, a burden to pray for a specific person. And then later finding out that that person was actually in a very dire or dangerous situation at the moment when they felt that burden to pray. So I like how there's this continuity between what God has done in the past and what I see God doing now. There's, uh, there's one other way that I can think of that uh, our Christian experience is a lot like this man's journey home. And the last way is that, like that man, we don't have the luxury of the bodily presence of Jesus with us. Um, now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is with us. Uh, he dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is very much a sense in which he is on the road of life with us. But we don't have that assurance of Jesus physically walking with us. We have to trust in his word, just like this man had to trust in his word. Maybe this morning you're in a good place. You know, maybe you feel like you're, you're walking on the road, uh, the road that I would describe as the road between promise and fulfillment. Okay, that's the road we're all on. Jesus has made his promises, 
and we are walking on the road trusting that those promises will, will eventually be fulfilled, but we haven't experienced the full fulfillment of those promises yet. So we are on the road between promise and fulfillment. And maybe for some of us, we're on that road and we just feel confident and secure in his promises. But maybe this morning you're on that road and you're having a hard time believing that the promises are ever going to be fulfilled. Maybe you're having a hard time believing that they apply to you. And this is a simple message this morning. You know, some, morning, some messages have complicated or very involved applications. This is the only application that I have to offer you guys this morning. Be encouraged by this story. You know, if you're, if you're on the road and you're struggling with those kinds of doubts, maybe these promises are never going to be fulfilled. I want you to imagine this man's joy the joy he must have experienced as he came into the house and he saw that his child really was healed and was well and that Jesus' word was true. This road that we travel between God's promise and his fulfillment, it can be long, it can be hard, it can be filled with uh, doubts, but I believe that when we get to the end, we'll see that the trip was worth it. And the journey there will be a lot more fun if in the process we are trusting that his word really is true and that at the end, healing really will come. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that wherever we are on that walk home, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would assure us of your promises, that you would remind us of the great things that you have said, uh, that we have a hope that is secure, that death will not win, that sin will not win, that the devil will not win. Father, I pray that those, those truths would be uh, new to us this morning, and I pray that they would give us joy in the present, Lord, as we look forward to their fulfillment at the end of the trip. In Jesus' name, amen.